So it's Thanksgiving night. You've had the meal. You've gone in for seconds. You've plated up in microwave thirds. You've had a plate with three different pieces of pie, pumpkin, apple, and pecan, because you just couldn't decide. And someone begins to bait you with yet another piece of pie, or perhaps another kind of dessert. What do you say to them? You all know what we say. No thank you. I've had enough. We have another phrase for that. I'm fed up. I am literally fed up. And that's where we begin the book of Isaiah. Verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Yotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Hmm. He says... Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is fed up. Enough is enough. He is put out. He's disgruntled. He's exasperated. He has had it. Now, I hope you're ready because we're about to shift gears probably not like we have ever done in the last eight years of Bible study. We're coming out of the Song of Songs (laughs) and into the book of the prophecy of Isaiah. And you cannot find, I don't believe, a greater contrast in Scripture. We have spent the last several weeks doing the right thing, studying the the Song of Songs, hearing the Lord pour out His love for us. 
Hearing Him say how much He desires us, how much He loves us. The romance and the allure of the Song of Songs. It's beautiful. It's encouraging. And in that song, you all know, we learn to say, I am my beloved's and His desire is for me. But don't forget what the beloved lover in the song said herself in her own words at the end of the song. She realized something. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6, she says, Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. The one time in the Song of Songs, God's name, Yahweh, is used right there. The very flame of the Lord. And the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So while on the one hand, He is the beloved, He is desiring His people, He has a passion for you, He loves you, He wants you close. On the other hand, do not forget, it is a terrifying thing to fall into His hands. We have to approach Him a little differently. Isaiah will call this the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And what I'm saying to you is not that we should deny that God loves us. He does. Not that we should turn away from accepting His passionate desire. But that we must recognize that if we take a relationship with the Lord of hosts too lightly or too loosely, not only can we end up dishonoring Him, but we can end up deceiving ourselves. Making light a relationship with the God of the universe. And so we would be wise to approach this study carefully. There is wisdom in opening up the book of Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, not with the giddiness of a lovesick schoolgirl, but instead with the fear and the trembling and the humility of the prophets themselves. You see, the prophets knew. They talked with God. They had interaction directly with God. And often this wiped them out. Often completely terrified them. Daniel would receive visions and were told at one point that he was laid out on his bed sick as a dog for three weeks after having received a vision from the Lord. You know, even in the last vision given, the revelation to John, what's the first thing that happened to John when he saw Jesus? Boom! He fell dead. Or at least like a dead man. You see, the prophets understood. When they heard from God, they were dealing with a holy God. An awesome God. A powerful God. This book powerfully reveals that. You will see God if you've never thought of Him that way, if you've always taken a casual approach to church and to God, or maybe you've really not taken an approach to church at all. If you have been casual with Him, you will come to know Him, as Isaiah calls Him, as the Holy One of Israel. Gadosh Israel. Gadosh Israel. David in his old age was likely the first one to write down that name for God. Psalm 71.22 We believe he wrote, I also will praise you with a harp, your truth, O my God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. Asaph and Eitan, a couple of other psalm writers, also would use that name for God. Psalm 78.41, Asaph says, Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Eitan in Psalm 89.18 said, Our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. God is our defense. Jeremiah would use the phrase twice. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 29. He wrote, Summon many against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, and camp against her on every side. Let there be no escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all that she has done, so do to her. For she has become arrogant against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Jeremiah also would write in Jeremiah 51 verse 5, Neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. So five times in Scripture that name is used by other writers, other authors, as we see. Isaiah is the dominant one to use that name. In the prophecy of Isaiah, he will use it 25 times. 
The Holy One of Israel. This is Isaiah's primary name for God as he has seen God, as he has this vision of the Lord. The Holy One of Israel. He'll use it one time in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 22. Isaiah is railing against the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And he says this, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel? What are you saying, Isaiah? Don't mess with God. Don't mess with the God of Israel. And by the way, He is still the God of Israel. Think twice about how you treat that nation today. The Holy One of Israel. And yet, how many people do mess with Him, I mean? How many people do blatantly stand in arrogance against the Holy One of Israel? How many in here have ever stood in that place making presumptions about God or assuming something about God or even presuming to speak for God? The Holy One of Israel. I believe if we could truly see God as Isaiah did, as the Holy One of Israel, we would come trembling before Him. We would hang on every single word He spoke and we would obey. Look over in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. Isaiah gets a vision. Now, some believe that's, this is the beginning of his prophecy. I don't think so. I think he's been prophesying for a little while. He's into his ministry a ways when he receives this vision. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Wait a minute, Rick. I thought the Bible said somewhere no one has seen God. Well, we'll talk about that when we get to Isaiah 6. But aren't we there right now? No, not really. Just read after me. Verse 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now see, that's the kind of angel I want to see on a tree. That one right there. And he called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, and this is the proper response, Woe is me. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, you cannot get a glimpse of the Holy One of Israel and just remain lighthearted or giddy or arrogant or self-impressed. When we see God as He is. Gang, the Lord is fed up. At least as we begin the book of Isaiah. I had to add that last line because even I'm sitting here a little worried that I'm going to presume to speak for the Lord. I can say this, if I were the Lord, looking down on our country and our world right now, I'd be fed up. As a matter of fact, probably ten years ago I would have said, Enough! I'm done! You silly idiots! Not you, personally. The world, America, come on! I've given you chance after chance after chance, and you can continue to spurn my name. You continue to rebel against me. See, that's what I would have said. But I'm not the Holy One of Israel. What I can tell you is that God is absolutely was completely fed up with His people Israel as we begin Isaiah. Over 2,700 years ago, the prophet wrote about God's exasperation with His people. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this? This this trampling of my courts. What's he talking about here? (laughs) 
going through the motions of worship with no sense of reverence. Where are our hearts when we come before the Lord? Is He fed up with all the pretense in the church? How about in our lives? Is He tired of watching us walk in the door pretending, acting like Christians in this setting, but going out into the business world and acting as pagan as it can get? Or in the treatment of our families? Or in the interaction in our homes? Are we inconsistent? God is fed up with Israel. He says in verse 13, Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Incense, a picture of prayer. And he goes on to say, New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. In other words, I'm sick of your sin with your heads bowed in pretentious prayer. I'm tired of you coming in and pretending like you're holy when you and I both know you're really not. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Glad our hands aren't covered with blood in America. That's just the beginning of Isaiah. Encouraged? This book is going to kick our teeth in. This prophecy, I believe, is going to set us right before the Lord if we will allow it to. And thank God, praise the Holy One of Israel, that we are a people who are saved by His grace and not by our behavior. Praise God that though this book begins with God's repugnance at Israel's rebellion, it ends with His restoration of His people. And it's an amazing story. But let's back up a bit this morning. Let's roll back the scroll of Isaiah and peer reverently in. And I just want to point out three things to you. Not twelve. Just three today. Three things by way of introduction. And if you're a note taker, you might jot these down. We're going to talk about the merit, the man, and the message of Isaiah. The merit, the man, the message. Number one, the merit, which we could do a year-long study on alone, but we won't. The merit of the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Who wrote the book of Isaiah? Kind of obvious. I mean, you'd think the first sentence of the first verse would immediately put that question to rest, and yet arrogant man comes up and tries to debate it. And has over the years. In fact, you know, it's interesting. This book, the authorship of Isaiah as belonging to the prophet Isaiah, that is chapter 1 through 66, the entire book, the authorship was never seriously questioned until the 18th century. Well, what happened in the 18th century? Well, it's that esteemed age referred to as the Enlightenment. When mankind became enlightened. When we began to wake up to such wonderful things as deism. The Enlightenment brought us deism and rationalism. Humanism. Just those three isms alone. Deny the integrity of Scripture and the interaction of the Holy Spirit without whom we cannot come to a knowledge of the truth. Deism, rationalism, humanism, it's that kind of thinking that the Apostle Paul, I believe, referred to when he said in 2 Timothy 3.7, these are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. When things are questioned and things are critiqued simply for the sake of questioning and critiquing, 
doctrine gets sideswiped by dogma. And this really began to take root in this age of the Enlightenment. The truth set aside in favor of prideful human pontification. We are an enlightened people. It's this, it's this questioning but never answering mentality and it has tragically permeated not only our thinking in Western civilization, but it has permeated the thinking in the church itself. This whole idea that, you know, let's just, let's just ponder and let's just ask and let's just be in conversation because everything's up for grabs. It's whatever you want to believe. Let's just sit under the banner of love and not worry about the doctrine of Scripture because, you know, I mean, we don't even know really if Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. No wonder there's so much frustration and confusion in the world today. No wonder people don't know where they're going. No wonder Black Friday is as tragic as it was this last week. I don't know how many of you braved it. I locked the doors and stayed home. Because I didn't want to get pepper sprayed at Walmart. I mean, for crying out loud. Did you hear about that one? The woman who she shot pepper spray in the air so she could get a lead on running in to get a certain toy or electronic device. And she's being charged with battery today. I hope she got some batteries. (laughs) because. Back to the book. When the Enlightenment sprang up, Isaiah became one of the most attacked books in the entire Bible. I mean, they were, really, the critics went after this one. They have tried to carve up Isaiah, going through the book like as though they had a big carving knife and the book was a turkey, and they just begin to carve it into pieces. In fact, it's interesting, they've tried to carve up Isaiah just like world leaders have tried to carve up Israel. Both big mistakes. Why the concerted attack on Isaiah? Think about that for a minute. Why the concerted attack on this particular book of prophecy? We'll answer that in just a moment. Critics began to conjecture that there were multiple authors to this book. That is really more of a compilation of different people coming up with different things as opposed to the writing of one man. They divide it into at least three separate books that they call 1st Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Trito-Isaiah. Why do they assume that? Well, they say because the focus changes in the book. You go on along chapters 1 through 35, and it's prophecy. And then you get to chapters 36 through 39, and suddenly, it's history. It's Isaiah's personal account, or whoever's writing, a personal account of, of Isaiah with Hezekiah the king. And then, chapters 40 through 66, you're back in this prophecy thing. It's all this futuristic stuff. And so, it really has to be a compilation. First Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, Trito-Isaiah. I don't know if there's a Quattro-Isaiah. Is the criticism legitimate? Not even close. Not even close. The book of Isaiah is, and this is not just... Pastor Rick's belief. I will show you why I'm going to say this. It is a single volume penned by a single writer under the singular inspiration of the Holy One of Israel. God wanted this book written. He spoke it to Isaiah. Clearly Christ, the Spirit of Christ, spoke to Isaiah who wrote these words out. And that will become more obvious even as we go, but I'll show you something this morning. A couple of simple reasons to accept the merit of the book of Isaiah. And again, we could spend hours on this. I did. (laughs) I finally had to stop and say, okay, I'm just going to have to tell them, trust me, it's a legitimate book. Because there is so much evidence behind it. In-depth analysis that supports both the authorship and the completeness of Isaiah as a single work. Two simple reasons I'll give you this morning. Two reasons to accept the merit of the book of Isaiah. Number one, external merit. External merit. Again, for nearly 2,500 years, Isaiah was accepted as the single work of a single author until the 18th century. And the time of enlightenment began to rattle Bible scholars and unfortunately, not a few Christians. Let me pause to say this, and it's so important, especially after last week's study. 
on the pre-tribulation rapture of the church and all those things. And by the way, that's online in three parts if you want to listen to it. Especially after last week's study. Listen, John Corson once said this, and this is a great saying. Never sacrifice what you know on the altar of what you do not know. Let me say that again. Never sacrifice what you know on the altar of what you don't know. Last week, I got several emails thanking me for this whole teaching that we had on the pre-tribulation rapture. Because at some level, the idea that we would go home before the wrath of God was faltering among some people. And so the appreciation wasn't so much in the teaching as much as, thank you for shoring this up because I was beginning to doubt. Thank you for reaffirming what Scripture says about this because I was beginning to waffle on it or I was beginning to get concerned or some other ideas were beginning to come in. Let me say this to you again. Never sacrifice what you know on the altar of what you don't know. That's why books like Isaiah start to get criticized. I'm not saying don't ask the the tough questions. Scripture can always stand up to the tough questions. I'm saying don't question just to question. Don't critique to undermine. Ask the question seeking the knowledge of the truth. And don't just toss out what you know to be true because someone comes along and starts talking about something you don't know to be true. Be careful with these things. doesn't mean believe blindly. It means don't sacrifice certainty for uncertainty. That's exactly how Eve got in trouble. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan's way of undermining truth is this. He says to Eve, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? No, God didn't say that. He didn't put that kind of restriction on them. So he starts to talk to Eve in questions. Eve gets flustered, and you know what happens next. She falls. The enlightened critics hammered away at Isaiah from the Enlightenment forward until something happened that knocked them on their collective critical cabooses. 1947, a young Bedouin goat herd looking for a lost goat came across a cave. Some believe either he saw the goat go in the cave, other other people think he was out treasure hunting. It's not exactly clear. But we know he was out there, 1947, looking for something, and he saw a cave. And being superstitious, he took a stone and he threw it into the mouth of the cave. And he heard a shattering noise which scared him, so he ran off. And then he got some friends, brought in some backup, and they came back and they went into the cave to discover a shattered jar and some parchment. And when they brought that out and it was looked at, well, the cave was called Qumran, or it was in a place called Qumran, the parchment, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Ultimately, they discovered 11 caves and tens of thousands of fragments from some 870 separate scrolls. These scrolls were written by a group of people, scribes, called the Essenes, who lived there in that region centuries ago. The greatest find among the Dead Sea Scrolls was two complete scrolls of Isaiah. Not just one, two. And when I say complete, everything from chapter 1 through chapter 66, complete those two scrolls. Studying this, scholars realized there was no what they call a lacuna or a gap. There was no gap between chapters 39 and 40. There's no gap earlier in the book. No gaps anywhere. Nothing to suggest that this was three different works, but that it's just one complete scroll by a single author. Until 1947, the oldest manuscript we had of Isaiah... (laughs) I feel like I'm having to outshout the rain. (laughs) Lord, could could you maybe turn it down to like seven? Until 47, the oldest manuscript that we had of the book of Isaiah was the Masoretic Text, which was from about 900 A.D., 900 years after Christ. Okay, So, 1,100 years ago. That's the oldest one we had. Now, that was good and old, but not old enough. The scrolls of Isaiah, they carbon dated these four times. And the carbon dating of these scrolls yielded dates between 335 and 107 before Christ, a thousand years older than the oldest text we had up till 1947. Amazing. 
And with the exception of a couple of spelling errors and a couple of verb tense errors, the book of Isaiah that they found in the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls is exactly the same as the one that we're going to study today. Does the Lord know how to preserve His Word? You don't need to worry about this. The external evidence historically, geographically, archaeologically is absolutely sound of this whole scroll of the prophet as one complete message from God. One of the greatest biblical archaeological finds in all of history. And by the way, note when it was found. 1947. One year before Israel became a nation again in 1948. You Bible students, if you'd like to do this, I encourage you, do a study of everything that happened in 1947. You'll be amazed. As the Lord was preparing, leading up to... His people becoming a nation yet again. So much has happened on the world scene, the archaeological scene, I can't go into this morning. But check it out when you have some time to do so. By the way, one other thing just to note externally, the Septuagint, which is the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, also has one complete Isaiah. And also gelled perfectly with the Isaiah manuscript found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. External merit. And there's so much more we could go into. Secondly, internal merit. God has a marvelous way of validating Scripture with Scripture. And if you compare, in the book of Isaiah, I'll give you some examples here, if you compare various Hebrew phrases in the wording of Isaiah, from the earliest chapters to the latest chapters, that some say are written by different authors, what's interesting is the same types of phrases are used throughout same writer. It's indicative of the same author. I'll give you some example of some solidly consistent phrases. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, he says, The law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah 51, verse 4, he says, Pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. The law will go forth. The law will go forth. The way it's written in the Hebrew, exactly the same. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. Isaiah writes, The wolf will dwell with the lamb. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's early in Isaiah. Late in Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Well, are there more examples of this? Dozens. I didn't want to just give you all of them this morning. I can give you more later if you'd like. Similar phrases, most of them unique, by the way, to the prophet Isaiah. Hebrew phrases not found in other places, like the Holy One of Israel, only found in five places, but throughout the book of Isaiah, God is referred to that way. The flow and the message of Isaiah are absolutely cohesive, just as you would expect they would be. Especially if this book has been inspired by the Spirit of Christ. Now, now this is what's marvelous. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter said, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here's another interesting, if not internal, piece of evidence. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. How many chapters in the Bible? Or books? 66 books. Interesting. Isaiah focuses 39 chapters on the law and righteousness of God. How many books in the Old Testament? 39. Isaiah gives 27 chapters on grace and salvation. How many chapters or books in the New Testament? 27. Interesting. And speaking of the New Testament, Christians, listen, this should absolutely cinch it for you. The book of Isaiah is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other book of the Hebrew Scriptures combined. You take all the rest of the prophecies, all the rest of the Hebrew Bible, and Isaiah is quoted more often than all the rest of it added up. Clearly, Jesus and the apostles believed in the authenticity of this book. 21 times the prophet Isaiah is mentioned by name in the New Testament. Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah says. And Paul said in Acts 28 verse 25, 
Paul said, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. He's speaking to a group of Jewish people. Saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And ironically, conservative Jewish scholars today point to the New Testament and all of those quotes as proof that Isaiah is a legitimate book in the Hebrew Scriptures. They see the internal evidence of Scripture and they use it as validation of the unity and the singularity of Isaiah. But here's the greatest reason to believe that Isaiah was written by Isaiah, the whole thing, as inspired by the Spirit of God. Jesus taught it. And as far as I'm concerned, if Jesus taught it, that's good enough for me. Rick, do you believe the prophet Jonah was swallowed by a whale? Yes, I do. Why? Because Jesus said so. Do you believe Daniel really prophesied all those things that he said? Yes. Why? Because Jesus said so. You're telling me that all 66 chapters of Isaiah are legitimately prophecies of God through this prophet Isaiah? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus said so. Jesus was absolutely clear about it. He taught it. In fact, one more thing to add to the arsenal, no other prophet was quoted more by Jesus than Isaiah. This is the one he went to. This is his go-to guy in his teaching. Yes, but Rick, you need to understand, Jesus didn't have the benefit of modern critical scholarship. Jesus launched His entire ministry from the springboard of Isaiah. Turn in your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to go somewhere else. You go to Isaiah 61. But don't worry, we'll meet up. I'm going to go over to Luke chapter 4. But again, you go to Isaiah 61, verse 1. Now watch this. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 tells us Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Okay, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But if you were reading Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you noticed something, didn't you? Jesus did not finish verse 2. Because verse 2 finishes with an, an addendum, if you will. The day of the vengeance of our God. I've come to do all these things, He says, verse 1, chapter 61, to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In other words, to bring God's grace into the world. That's why I'm here. And gang, my presence here, Jesus speaking, is fulfilled. This verse fulfilled in me. But He had to stop there. Why? Well, because the day of the vengeance of our God has not yet come. Reason number 13 for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. (laughs) Jot this down. A pause between grace and wrath. Jesus in His first coming says, I came for the favor of the Lord to bring grace to this world. This is fulfilled in me now. The last part of the verse will be fulfilled by Jesus in the tribulation. And God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation 
Amen? So it's just another interesting point here. It agrees, by the way, Jesus taking this verse and stopping halfway in, saying here it has been fulfilled, this not yet. A pause there agrees with Daniel's pause between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. God's timepiece stopping. Rick, what are you talking about? If you weren't here last week, you've got to go back and listen. It's online. You can check it out. Jesus. Jesus chose Isaiah to launch His public ministry, a ministry that would change the world. Why would He do that? Because Jesus is the one who gave Isaiah the words to write down in the first place. What? Jesus inspired Isaiah to write about Jesus. Where do you get that? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So there's your merit. Meet the man. The man Isaiah, number two in your notes. It's been said that the four towering figures of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures are Abraham the Patriarch, Moses the Lawgiver, David the King, and Isaiah the Prophet. Among all the prophets, Isaiah stands tall. Victor Buxbazen, in an excellent commentary that he's written on Isaiah, wrote, Halfway between Moses the Lawgiver and Jesus the Messiah stands the towering figure of Isaiah the son of Amoz, a contemporary of the prophets Amos, Hosea, and Micah. The book of Isaiah is undoubtedly the high watermark of prophetic vision and thought. Isaiah, an amazing man. He lived during the reign of Judah's 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th kings. So his prophecy spans four different kings. Look back at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. This is the vision of Isaiah the son of Amaz concerning Judah or concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uzziah, good king. Hezekiah, good king. Jotham and Ahaz, not so much. And Isaiah would prophesy during the reign of all four of these guys. His primary concern, as we see there in verse 1, was with Judah. And Jerusalem in the days of the divided kingdom. So get your history right as we study Isaiah. He's during the reign of these kings. And this is after the kingdom was split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Right? And so he's in that southern kingdom. His focus is Judah. His focus is Jerusalem. And this would roughly put us at about 750 down through 680 years before Christ. That would be the lifetime of Isaiah, somewhere in there, 750 B.C. to about 680 B.C. Based on the timing of the reigns of these kings, Isaiah probably began his ministry at around the age of 25 to 30. Most of the prophets were right around that age. And he most likely outlives Hezekiah because 2 Chronicles 32.32 tells us that he wrote all about the life and the times of Hezekiah after his death. So he outlived Hezekiah and Jewish tradition holds that Isaiah himself was probably martyred by Hezekiah's son, King Manasseh. How was this done? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. New Testament, so go to the far right. Not politically, biblically. Hebrews 11, 37. Talking about all those who were faithful to the Lord, who trusted the Lord, who gave their lives to the Lord and lived for Him. We're told in verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive. Note that. Did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, 
They would not be made perfect. Now note this in verse 37. It mentions someone being sawn in two. We believe that was Isaiah. That Manasseh had him put in a hollow log and sawn in half. And that traditionally is how we believe that Isaiah died. At the age, by the way, of 92. It would take a great deal of wickedness to take a 92-year-old man and sacrifice him that way. Let me just add, in my own personal opinion, it takes a great deal of wickedness to take any elderly person and sacrifice them for the sake of younger people. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, think about it. So Hebrews 11, talking about these great men of faith, ends with this stunning statement... God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What does that mean? It means, listen, we're all a part of this. We are not just going back to dust off some ancient scroll of Isaiah and say, well, that's interesting. No, this is our book. As much as the Song of Songs spoke to our hearts, this speaks to our very lives. It speaks to our very salvation. We are involved right now in this day and age with what Isaiah was involved in 2,700 years ago. Don't cast Isaiah off as being irrelevant to you in your life. He was involved in the same plan you are. The same message you and I carry today is the message of Isaiah. That's awesome. We are involved in something, gang, that is amazing. Now, according to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, we know Isaiah was married. He referred to his wife in many ways the same way I refer to Cheryl as the prophetess. Maybe <laughs> husbands just real, notice your wives just know stuff. You know? I don't get it. Anyway, he called her the prophetess. We're not going to hear any other name for Isaiah's wife in the book. That's just how he refers to her. But we do hear his son's names. And this is important to note. He had two boys. An older son, Shiryashub. It's a good name. And a younger son, Macher Shalal Hashbaz. Which if any of you, you know, expecting moms want to think about, those are a couple of really good names you could use. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 7 verse 3, Shir Yashub means, the name means, a remnant shall return. That's his firstborn son. Secondborn son wasn't as, you know, uh, wasn't given such a, a nice name. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, talks about his name means hasten to spoil, hurry to pray. But it's not P-R-A-Y, it's P-R-E-Y. What's that mean? It means that Isaiah named his sons as two living symbols, two prophetic boys whose names speak of the older divine mercy and the younger determined wrath. Divine mercy and determined wrath. And I read those and I thought, I wonder if I misnamed Corey and Hayden. Sure, Yashub? Dinner time? Machair Shalal Hashbaz? Get inside? Divine mercy? Determined wrath? I mean, that's amazing. I could have gone with mercy and wrath for my kids' names. Good morning, Mercy. Wrath, how you doing? <laughs> and can you imagine them in their dating life later on in life, you know? How can, what's your name, Wrath? Nice talking to you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, I, I point this out because Isaiah's entire family, his wife, the prophetess, and his older son, Mercy, and his younger son, Wrath, his whole family was caught up in his ministry. Talk about PKs. <laughs> Prophets' kids. He says in Isaiah 8.18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord have given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. My kids are part of the deal, he says. God gave them to me and the message that I bear is the message that they bear as well. His whole family was part of this. And you know, that caught me off guard because I was, I was studying this and I thought, I have tried really hard for a long time in my life to protect my kids from my ministry. I really have. Tried not, you know, no, it's okay. I don't want you sons to be too, you know, 
judged by anyone in the church. I, I, I don't want you to do what Dad does just because this is, you know, because I'm a pastor. I don't want you. And I'm starting to rethink this. <laughs> and I'm starting to wonder if perhaps I need to rename David. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I am wondering if there's not something to be said for entire families being caught up in ministry together. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then it's not just about my singular faith, but it is about the faith of my wife and the faith of all of my children. That we are all engaged in this. And we as an extended family, the Bridge Fellowship, are every single one of us engaged in the message of Isaiah. Is that not the way it should be? At a minimum, parents, shouldn't it be our heart's desire to walk with our children in the Lord? By faith together. And parents, are you doing that? Now, I know, even in saying this, some of you immediately would say, my children have rebelled. My children don't. Walk with me with the Lord. Well, let me encourage you by saying God's children didn't either, did they? God's children were rebellious from day one. So easy to sink into the guilt of parenting instead of to sink down on your knees in prayer. And pray for your kids. And if they're rebellious, you pray and you keep praying. And if every time you try to bring Jesus up to them, they rebel against it and say, I don't want to talk about that, Dad. Come on, Mom. Leave that out of the conversation. Then you pray for them more. And you pray that God brings someone into their life that can affect change. Someone that they will listen to if they won't listen to you. That's why God sent the prophets. People stop listening to Him. So he said, all right, I'll send the prophets. Maybe they'll listen to these guys. That didn't work. He knew it wouldn't. So he said, and I'm on the verge of a Jesus parable here, he said, I'll send my son. Perhaps they'll listen to him. And you know what the world did to Jesus. Moms and dads, you pray for your kids. And you remain passionate for them. In the same way God continues to be passionate for people. This is why Isaiah begins with a fed up father. Verse 2, Listen, O heavens and, and hear, O earth. The Lord speaks, Sons I have reared and brought up, but they've revolted against me. An ox knows its owner. And a dumb donkey, I added the word dumb, I know, a donkey, its master's manger. You know, a donkey knows where it's fed. A donkey understands the hand that feeds it. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The Apostle John began his gospel in a very similar way to the beginning of the book of Isaiah. He wrote in John chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. He came to His own. And those who were His own, the Jewish people, did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the Father, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So again, parents of rebellious kids, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. If you've had enough with their rebellion, understand this. God Himself had had enough with Israel. He was fed up. He was up to here with their rebellion. And He didn't give up. That's amazing. Verse 18 of chapter 1. He didn't give up. Come. Come now. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God didn't give up. 
Isaiah watched northern Israel devoured by the sword. 722 B.C. when the Assyrians flooded into the northern kingdom of Israel and took them off into captivity and there would never be that northern kingdom again. Many of those Israelites fled to the southern kingdom at the time. Many were taken off by the brutality of the Assyrians. They would not obey. They would not repent. Isaiah watched it happen. Gang, God is up to here with rebellion. He is fed up with corruption as this book begins. And so he restarts the conversation. I love that. He restarts the conversation. How? Watch this. Last thing to note about the man Isaiah. Note Isaiah's name. Isaiah's name, Yeshayahu, or abbreviated Yeshayah. It's a composite name that bears the heart of his prophetic message. Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. God saves. Bible students, does that sound familiar? You see, a later variation on the very same name is Yeshua. Yeshua. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Gabriel said to Joseph, she'll bear a son and you will call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. Yeshua, Jesus, God saves. I asked earlier why the concerted attack attack on the book of Isaiah. This is why. It's not the man that matters so much. It is not the merit of the book that matters so much, although it's a proven thing. It is the message. The message is what brought about the attack. It is not the prophet. It's the prophecy. Because as rational man, as humanistic man, as deistic man began to rethink things and challenge all of the the assumptions of Scripture that had been handed down literally for the centuries, they came to Isaiah and they could not deal with the message of the truth. What is the message of Isaiah? It starts off in verse 1 again saying the vision of Isaiah. That word vision is hatzon in the Hebrew. Hatzon means to see, but literally it's to see with revelation. To see with understanding. The opening of Isaiah's book is remarkably similar to the opening of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Here's the deal. Isaiah sees with revelation. And his message then is given to the people so that they would see. But there's a problem Sometimes seeing doesn't come without believing. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, of the court, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join his chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. That's Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And that's the section. And this eunuch was reading this, and he's confused by it. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Did you know you can preach the gospel without ever opening up the New Testament? Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. From what? From Isaiah? Yeah. 
from Isaiah, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. He had none of the letters of Paul. He didn't have the revelation of John. He just had Isaiah. And the Ethiopian eunuch was saved by faith in Jesus Christ through the prophet Isaiah. In fact, we're told that uh, as they went along the road, verse 36, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, (laughs) raptured him. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. And Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah. You see, the towering figure of the Old Testament is not Abraham the patriarch. And it is not Moses the lawgiver, and it is not David the king, and it is not Isaiah the prophet. The towering figure of the Hebrew Scriptures gang is Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus the Messiah is the message of Isaiah. The message is the Messiah. The message is the Messiah. If you want to understand this book of prophecy, you've got to get messy. Messianic. You've got to get into Jesus. You've got to be willing to see Jesus Christ as Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah of Israel. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19.10 tells us. Jesus is the message of Isaiah. Now as we begin Isaiah today, you can look around and you know we've begun the Christmas season. Listen. This is great timing. Because as we begin to remember the birth of our Savior, I invite you this season to do so with a sense of holy awe. To look at Jesus perhaps differently than you have before. Don't forget the nature of Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Who's that? The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel with us. Isaiah is going to help. He writes more about Messiah than any other prophet of the Hebrew Scriptures. And he begins very young. Isaiah 7.14 tells us, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. Isaiah chapter 9 Verse 6 says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus is the message of Isaiah. Isaiah has been called the fifth evangelist, following Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Actually, he would be the first, preceding the other four, wouldn't he? His book has been called the fifth gospel. So in essence, we are doing a gospel right now. For in this book, he covers, gang, the virgin birth of Christ, the character of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the glorious kingdom and rule and reign of Christ. All in this one book. No wonder this book has come under such scrutiny and attack. Someone a box Messiah into some quaint, quiet story of a humble manger and keep him there. People who want to keep God in booties and a blanket sleeper. Why would they want to do that? Because he's safe there. He's harmless there. He's cute there. He's nice to look at. He's a fable there. Some don't even want to give that much of a nod to God. Some say, get the manger out of the public square. We don't need any of that Christian stuff around the holidays, around the holy days. Gang, all of what we see in the attack on Isaiah, the attack on Christmas, all this stuff, gang, it, it shows us how frightened the devil is of the Holy One of Israel. 
who is prophesied and taught about throughout the book of Isaiah. Gang, Isaiah takes the baby out of the box. 750 years before his earthly birth, Isaiah displays him in all his glory as the one true Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And what's remarkable to me is when God was absolutely fed up, when enough was enough, what did He do? He came in flesh. He sent Jesus. God had it with us. Not just Israel, but all of mankind. I'm sick of your sin. And so He sent Jesus. Are you fed up? You know, with trying to make it on your own or... Finding yourself getting more and more unhealthy as you eat of the things of the world? Had enough trying to do things on your own? Come to Jesus. Come to the One who says, let's reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Father, we come to Jesus this morning. We open this book not, Lord, just to read some interesting prophecy, but we open the book to see Jesus Christ. We open the book to bow down before the Holy One of Israel. We open the book, Lord, truly to receive Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. And I pray, Father, that there would be conviction among us. That if there's anyone in the next several weeks, in the next several months, Lord willing, as long as time permits... As we study through and read this book together, if there is anyone who has not accepted the the Messiahship, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, I pray it would happen now. I pray for that to happen this morning. May we recognize in truth what You've done, who You are. And may we be prepared for when You come again. In Jesus' name, Amen.